Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Future and Innovation Podcast. I'm Nihal Helmi, Knowledge and Communities Manager here at the Center. Our Global Perspectives 2021 hybrid experience was as exciting and inspiring as you'd expect. We gave our communities the opportunity once again to immerse themselves in themes and workshops, designing common strategies to address key trends, challenges, and opportunities of shifting power. We have created these episodes to bring you some of the conversations and panels we experienced during the conference. We hope you find them as insightful and valuable as we did. Um, welcome everyone who hasn't joined us there. My name is Miriam, Miriam Niehaus. I'm the head of collaboration and partnerships here at the center. Um, I will be leading you through today's session and I'm very excited to now announce our next panel discussion where we're actually going to learn from um, perspectives outside of the development sector how others have really addressed uh, colonial structures and racist structures in their work and how they've taken to those different dimensions. This panel is not all English speaking, so we'll have English French translation. And now I would actually like to hand over to the moderator of this panel, um, Caroline Harper, Chief Executive of Sightsavers, and also the board chair of the International Civil Society Center. Thank you very much, Miriam. Um, and uh, welcome everybody, it's lovely to be here. Um, so yes, I am the chair of the ICSC and I'm also the chief executive of Sightsavers. And I'm really pleased to be able to uh, moderate this session on practical approaches from other sectors uh, around decolonization. So I'll, I'll go straight in and, and introduce uh, our three speakers. Our first speaker, Irene uh, Bohati, who will be speaking in French. So please do use your translation at the bottom um, for her. And she's a teaching assistant at the Department of Commercial Sciences at Higher Pedagogical Institute of Bukavu in Congo. And she's also a researcher at the Research Group for Violent Conflict and Human Security. So she'll be talking about um, decolonizing academia and particularly in the context of researching conflict areas. I mean, this is obviously so topical at the minute, given the terrible news coming out of Ethiopia. Mm. So really mm. looking forward to hearing uh, what Hen has to say. Uh, we then have Natalia Ravello La Rocca, who is a designer from uh, Coloquet mm. in the US. And she'll be talking about decolonizing architecture oh. and how urban design can perpetuate, but also change power structures. And then finally, we have Ali Mali, who is the uh, chief executive officer of Welcoming Australia, and he'll be talking about decolonizing uh, public administration. So, Irene, can I hand over to you? Um, the question that I'd like you to, to address to is, how does colonization manifest itself uh, in your specific area of work? How has your organization... So, um, Irene, could you speak to that question about um, how colonization uh, manifests itself in your area of work and, and what have you done about that? Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. My name is Irene Bahati. I'm a, a Congolese researcher, also a teaching assistant. I work uh, in these sensitive areas and we've seen how to 
think about the processes of decolonization, giving, given that what we do in our work in, in research, collaborative research, the researchers who work in difficult situations in the east, eastern part of the DRC and the larger area of the Great Lakes region are forced to work in quite difficult conditions. And it is in this regard that we did launch in Bukavu, the Bukavu series, to try and open up a debate, analyze the balances of power in terms of collaboration and uh, the research which has now become a business, if you will, where there are people who finance the research uh, for the researchers on the ground without necessarily having putting in place security, physical security mechanisms, as well as uh, uh, legal security for these researchers. So these are the kinds of conditions in which they are working. And uh, it's presenting all these inequalities, uh, imbalances. The researchers that are working in these zones, they work in very difficult, very difficult conditions, as I've just said, without necessarily having their security guaranteed. And given this psychological trauma, the researchers in Bukavu in the eastern part of the DRC did come together and uh, the, the, the groups that are working on the human security with the, the help of the researchers from the north or northern countries, how to deconstruct these relations of power that, are ex that exist in academic and political debates with respect to the scientific research that is commissioned. So they, they are taken as robots that just collect the data and do not participate in the entire process. And so there are researchers from the Northern countries that have the funds. And on the other hand, there are local researchers who work in difficult conditions on the ground and, and face all these challenges. So all these researchers who are faceless, who are silent, came together to try and understand what they could do to try to see how they can solve these psychological problems that they go through and other problems. In 2018, we did have a debate where the seed researchers did speak about their experiences on the ground with respect to all that was happening on the psychological level. And these researchers do not participate across the entire chain of research, even in terms of funds, in terms of methodology. And I'm going to surprise you here. Uh, the seed researchers are the ones who have the context and they understand what is happening across the entire research. There is no space, maneuvering space that is given to these researchers on the ground so that they can be able to adapt the research according to the situation on the ground. Everything is blocked, everything is difficult. And so this is a business in research, in the production of knowledge. 
So the, the Bukavu series already with a, there, there is a book that was put at the service of the community for the, for the voiceless people. We are the people who are speaking for the voiceless people so that people can be able to know what is happening in the academic field, what is happening in terms of collaborative research. So thematic areas were developed, the members between the members of these institutions uh, and as I was saying, they do not have maneuvering space. The researchers go on the ground, they do collect the data, and then everything is later on passed over to the person that commissioned that research or ordered that research. So the local communities, they just give the data, but then they don't report back. And then there is no, we don't even have translation. And this is quite a big challenge. And these uh, power inequalities in terms of uh, academic research. The researchers on the ground, as I was saying, are exposed to a lot of risks. They are armed groups. We go on the ground and they, without really having a, a signed co contracts. And, and if where contracts ex exist, they are really flimsy ones, not really concrete. And, and in Bukavu series, we did open a, an opportunity for other researchers within the civil society to know and understand what are their uh, claims so, so that they can be able to speak, to show all the abuses, all the power imbalances in this, in this production of knowledge. We did ask for this process to be on an equal basis even if you know we have the financial challenges that are associated in all these processes there is the, the, they are invisible on the ground when there is analysis it is done in, uh, in, in it's, it's done in a hidden way it's not very open so we came up with recommendations in, in, with respect to how we are engaged to be able to break this silence so that the seed researchers, they also have an important place. They can play an important place in the production of this, this knowledge. It is in this way that we brought onto the table of the scientific research so that we can be able to develop a respectful, relationship based on equity and we don't just want them to wait for the results of the research yet they did not participate in the research everything in terms of risk and then seed researchers are just shoved away so on the book the Bukavu series we speak to all these issues and after the research, the researcher it no longer participates. They are faceless. They are not even mentioned in, the, in these processes. So today, we are able to speak to the greater public, to the civil society. And we, I, I'd like to call upon uh, these people so that we can be able to be seen, to speak about colonization, decolonization and the neo-colonialism in the different professions, in the different 
uh, you know, we have to break this silence. Equally, I call upon you to have a change, to be able to develop a relationship that is more participative, that is concrete, so that we can be able to speak to each other, we can be able to participate in all these processes of production of knowledge. And whether it's in the NGO, humanitarian or development uh, domains, we all must be able to participate in these processes. And to, in conclusion, we do have a responsibility, whether it's at the individual or collective level, nothing will change if we do not move on to this collaboration that on an equal footing and in all that they did try to put this to the public to as, as a first step, a first large step to allow the other parties, the other people who are the other sectors of activity to, uh, and we will not get to, we will not be able to win this war if we do not break this silence because we are the voice of the voiceless. I do thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Aren. Um Actually, I've, I've experienced some of what you've discussed in terms of academia too in the global health sphere, where we see um, it's very rare that um, African researchers are quoted as authors on the papers that they've been contributing to, and it's often uh, you know the white academics that take all the glory. So that's certainly something we're challenging in in, in what we see. Uh, so can we move on, please, now to uh, Natalia? Aussi. Alors maintenant, nous allons passer à Natalia. Yeah, so just to start off, architecture is basically all about colonialism. Um, the profession itself is rooted in a lot of white centrist um, and colonial practices. So in itself, everything we do in architecture is tighter and it's manifested through architecture. And just looking at the practice itself, it's about occupying land and imposing a way of being on that land. So there again, you have your direct connection, but also looking at it in the way that colonial powers have used architecture. You can look back and for very nearly every injustice, there is an architecture that has been built to sustain and perpetuate it. And a lot of it comes through power. Architecture and power have a very strong relationship. So if you look at, for example, the urban renewal projects in the United States, specifically the lineage from Robert Moses in New York, where he built a bunch of highways that split up a lot of black and brown neighborhoods, specifically the Bronx and all the effects that are still lingering from those decisions and decisions of power that were made without community input that were made um, to further an agenda. And most people would say it was, you know, it was an unprecedented or unexpected effect, but Robert Moses knew exactly what he was doing. So, and that design has always been very um, instrumental in establishing these power structures. And part of what we do here at Colocate is trying to look at one through design justice, which is our means of practice, where we look at the histories um, and recognize the roles of these histories of inequality in the spaces that we work in in their society and actively address their ongoing effects um, of those legacies, as well as working to dismantle any barriers to opportunity and access and inclusion moving forward. So one way we do this is about sharing power. Um, and we like to center communities as um, in our projects, but not just all, not just every community and everything. We also look at the histories of who's been most affected, who has been uh, perpetually 
oppressed by these spaces that we're working on or the spaces that we would be working on um, and center their voices. So one example of a project that we have is we're working on a jail in Dallas that was a previous jail. And now we're looking at what can we do with the space? So we have a program called the Community Design Advocates where we hire people from the community. So part of what Inan was saying is we also don't want to perpetuate the extractive policies that architecture has been doing where they reach out to communities, take a bunch of information and then leave them at that. We work with them and we train them and we also help them to advocate for their own communities through this program. And we also pay for all the labor that we ask for. Um, so we don't wanna be falling into destructive behavior. But what we do with this program is we hire people from the community. We have them um, talk to their own community, talk to their own family and friends. But the people that we hire are also representative of the communities that are most oppressed by the project that we're working on. So for this prison in this former prison in, in Dallas, we hired a lot of formerly incarcerated people to talk about their experiences, to talk about their experiences with their family. Some of them were jailed at Dawson itself, some of them were jailed somewhere else. And the wealth of knowledge that we get from them and the perspective that we get is unparalleled from our own, which has also been a problem with architecture. Architects believe that they can solve the problem on their own. And one of our uh, principles is that we honor the Grio. We honor local experiences that are most affected by these spaces and places that we see. Instead of ourselves being the experts, we again we hire out and we ask them to give them our give them the, give us their perspective. And through there, so we have that in place, and we're working with a few in different parts of the country. And our goal for this program is that it's not just for us to get a perspective on how to program the space and how to define or decide what goes into a space, but also to help them advocate for their own community so that the next time there's a project in their neighborhood, they know the ropes of how to fight for their communities, that they know that they, if this project is harmful, that they know how to stop, that they know how to rally around and stop a project that would be harmful or rally around and propose a project that could be helpful in lieu of that project. Sorry, my cats, I apologize. Um, and then another thing that we do with this community engagement is, as some of you know, with architecture, when you submit a project, it's a bunch of drawings, there's a bunch of technical stuff, but we've designed a, a set of these drawings that also track community input into the decision-making power. So we look at how many people said this and who specifically said, for example, that we want pedestrian space in, the, in this project, and we'll create a, a design set where we put all their comments on the sheet and we track where exactly this decision was made and who was making the decision as a way to not just share the power, but be transparent about the way that we're using community input in our work, um, which again, has been a very big issue in architecture where people just check the box of, we went out there, we talked to people, and then we come back and we do our own design. We're trying to change that structure where we went out there, we talked to people, and here's how we incorporated their work. Here's how we incorporated all the effort, all the stories that they've told us about how they use the space, how they wanna use the space into the decision-making power and we're sharing that power with everyone. Um, so in a way, like we're, we're still decolonizing architecture. It's a process, we're still learning. So these are some of the tactics that we've started to use um, and we're still working on developing more ideas and developing more programs that we can help to push this agenda forward because it is something that's now been very common in architecture. So we're looking at other fields, we're looking at other practices to see what else we can do. And I think that's part of why Colocate has been so successful in this is that we understand our limits. We understand 
that we are not the experts and we look out to others that can help us in developing all these projects. Thank you very much, Natalia. That's fascinating. Um, I mean, it, it reminds me of some of the work that we've uh, tried to do in disability, where you know much of architecture is is not inclusive of people with disabilities, and it's a, another form of kind of uh, not involving a community in in using um, in using architecture. So thanks very much. And we move on now to Aleem. Aleem, um, you're based, I gather, in in Brisbane, in Australia. I gather Australia's welcoming back to the world now. Uh, you're opening back up again, so. Um, it'd be great to hear you tackle the same question about uh, colonialism in public administration and what your organisation has been doing uh, to tackle it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm joining you from the lands of the Turrbal and Jagera peoples, otherwise known as Brisbane, Australia, and I'm sitting in my home office and it's 10.15pm here. Um, and it, it's important that I share whose traditional lands I'm on because the sovereignty of the Turrbal and Jagera peoples and First Nations across this entire continent uh, has never been ceded. Um, and so Australia is a settler colonial nation. And as such, colonization is very much an ongoing process in this country. Um, and so addressing First Peoples justice is very much a vital part of decolonization work, noting uh, that our systems of government have historically over many, many years uh, sought the eradication or exclusion of First Peoples. And even uh, now in contemporary society, we don't have a formal mechanism for the inclusion of First Peoples in governance or to address sovereignty other than uh, native title, um, which is claims of land by traditional owners and what we call reconciliation action plans, which are voluntary mechanisms for business or organisations or government uh, to set targets for improving outcomes for and relationship with Indigenous peoples. And so our work at Welcoming Australia uh, through a national initiative that we have called Welcoming Cities, while it's focused not uh, exclusively um, on First Peoples justice, uh, we're not uh, an Indigenous-led or owned organisation. Um, it's more focused on migration, settlement and advancing social cohesion. Um, our work very much obviously exists in that context. And so for us, challenging colonisation has involved uh, a number of things. Um, symbolically, and some would say possibly meaninglessly, we changed our name as an organisation from Welcome to Australia we became welcoming Australia, which is somewhat subtle, but we think important differentiation because it symbolizes very much that our place is not to welcome anyone to this country in the first instance. That's actually the role and the right of the dispossessed first peoples of this country. And welcoming Australia as a name is uh, aspirational. It's who we strive to be. Um, we have three tiers of government in Australia. We tend to focus our work on local or municipal governments. Um, we developed a standards and accreditation process that benchmarks the entire breadth of work that local government does in creating places of belonging for all their residents uh, through what is called the Welcoming Cities Standard. Uh, and the first category of the standard is leadership, which addresses that engagement with and valuing the voices and roles of First Peoples in welcoming and inclusion work uh, and benchmarks leading practice for local government uh, in this space. And we're also working to try and ensure that migration and settlement doesn't compound disadvantage. And so um, 
whilst many areas of uh, Australia, predominantly the coastal areas, are rapidly growing uh, and growing in not only population but cultural diversity, um, many of our regional and rural areas are experiencing population and economic decline. Il y, a, il y a beaucoup de, 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 de déclin économique et par conséquent, les migrants peuvent... Addressing some of those issues, but often what happens is that uh, that's done without consideration of um, the issues of entrenched disadvantage and high unemployment levels uh, in many of those communities, especially amongst First Peoples. And so we work with communities to map and understand what is happening in their communities, the changes that they would like to make, and help them develop a whole of community approach to achieving their vision. Um, and that work is now happening uh, with 66 local councils across Australia who are representative of about 40% of the Australian population. So it's uh, scaling and growing quite significantly. Sorry, I was muted. Thank you very much, Aleem. And thank you for reminding us that decolonization is not just about the more traditional development, you know, considering, you know, people in Africa and former colonies, but also the uh, indigenous people, First Nations across um, uh, the global north as well. So that's fascinating. What I'd like to do now is ask each of the panelists to very quickly to just say what lessons they think that they could take from their own experiences that would be particularly helpful for us in the development sector. Um, and maybe I'll ask that question in reverse order. So I'll start with you, Aleem. Um, and can you say what lessons do we have? Can I ask you to keep it fairly short because we do only have uh, five minutes each for this final question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, broadly speaking, we witness, and to be honest, we're complicit in three different ways of working. Um, and we see this across sectors and industries in this country. And so, uh, and uh, the other panelists have talked about the importance of this work. So community-led and community-owned uh, is the first way of working, which is the ideal approach. It's strengths-based responses that uh, are identified, framed, and delivered by, for, and with communities who are most impacted by the complexity of challenges that we face. And that really should always be our goal. There's, there's no longer any room or role for colonizers or, or white saviors in this space. There's agency-led work, which is okay and, and important and, and you know about bringing expertise and the possibility of facilitation and coordination especially if it involves facilitating and amplifying uh, and resourcing community-led and own work and then uh, there's what we see is very much co-opted or, or stolen work which is never okay but actually all too prevalent and um, it's it's even as often more subtle than we think, it's where organisations and institutions consistently centre themselves in work rather than centering the people that they exist to serve and support. And I, I think we're so used to bad behaviour that we barely notice it anymore if we ever did. Um, and we see those three ways of working every day on every issue. Um, and I guess if you'd had long enough to even think about what I've just said, you, you might say, well, you didn't say co-design as an option. Um, to be honest, co-design, whilst absolutely agree, is a very important principle um, and akin to the concept of, of walking beside people. We talk a lot about walking beside, walking beside first peoples, walking beside victims of violence and abuse, walking beside marginalised and vulnerable communities. But 
we would argue that we actually don't know how to do that. Um, the dispossessed understand what it might mean to walk alongside, but paternalism and colonial mindsets are so pervasive that we actually only understand walking alongside from the context of power and privilege and being forever the leader. Um, and so before we can walk alongside, we actually need to learn to walk behind and to be led. And, that, and that's a process that is ongoing for us at the moment. Thank you very much, um, Aline. Uh, can I go to Natalia now? And, and can you share what- Hello, Natalie, est-ce que vous pouvez partager avec nous? Can you, could you share what lessons you might have for the development sector? Yes, so for us, it, it kind of comes along with power analysis and being able to challenge that power. I think with architecture, it's been seen as it could be a savior and in itself, like architecture is only changing part of the problem. Um, but one of the things that we do is that we ask ourselves to be radical and radical in the sense of imagining just futures and liberation, but also getting to the root of these larger issues. A lot of the problems that we see locally um, are grounded in a lot of policies and procedures that have been built over time of systematic racism. So unless we start challenging those, what we're doing is just a Band-Aid on the surface. So one of the biggest lessons that we've taken from other fields and that we would like to pass on is look at what are, is at the root of these problems. Look at what is causing these larger issues and challenge those. Um, we can start challenging the, the effects and that's gonna make a small impact but until you start changing the procedures and policies that are in place that create and perpetuate these structures of power, you're not gonna get anywhere. And I think with architecture is we're trying. Um, one of the things that we do is with everyone that we work with is we do this training so that they understand that you know, what we're doing is part of it, but they also have to do some internal structure changing, especially when we're working with um, clients and not our own uh, self-funded projects that we're working with others that have power is, having them understand that the power that they have needs to be shared, having them understand that we're looking at all these injustices and their policies and their structures need to change as well if they really want to get to these liberatory spaces that they're asking us to create. Thank you very much. Uh, and so now I'll give the last word to Irene. Um, and Irene, uh, there's an interesting comment in the chat here about are we thinking too much about power structures and enough about the psychological aspects, particularly you talked about some of the researchers on the ground taking a lot of psychological risks with little agency or decision-making. So would you like to comment on that and also on, on further lessons that you've learned from the work you've done? Thank you so much. I've just seen the comments in the chat box. I'd like to thank you very much for that. So we who are engaged in the debate from an academic point of view to understand these imbalances, to understand the, this collaboration with SEED, a collaboration that up, up, up to this moment is not, is imbalanced. So where I work, where I teach, it's very insecure. These researchers go to the ground and, and we just start the research, but we don't know whether we are going to be back from the research because the conditions are really, really difficult on the ground. And this, the, the plunge, in, it creates a lot of trauma and psychological issues. Uh, so the, 
we look for the researchers who worked work in the conflict areas, but we wanted to first of all launch uh, so, so this Bukavu series so that these people who are going to read these books know that there's still a lot of things that need to be done. There's a whole debate that needs to be had to so that this collaboration can be on an equal basis. The, yes, trauma it does exist. Uh, the risk is physical, emotional, uh, is also legal because these uh, researchers are not secure. So this debate, it's in this way that the debate was opened up in 2018. Uh, so we are trying to increase the network to improve communication. We did begin with the blog, with the book, and currently we're doing vlogs uh, so, so that we a bigger audience can be able to listen to these and watch uh, so that we can see how we can move things along together. Because in colonization, if we are in a permanent state of stress and imbalances, no one is going to win. So the debate is pretty much open and we are trying to understand what exactly we need to do. So it's in this way that the Bukavu series informs the people that follow us, but it also envisages other activities with institutions, national, international, even local, conferences, the debates, exchanges, even with authorities to understand exactly what we need to do. What is the problem in terms of collaboration? Yes, the space is there on the one hand, but also we need to take charge so that we can be able to deconstruct all these problems in terms of neo-colonialism that is observed in the academic world, but also in other sectors because it's not just in the academic debates, but in all the sectors where we do observe that there is a hand that gives and a hand that receives. So we are trying to help local people who are in these conflict areas. This is what I wanted to, I thank you very much. Thank you, Irena. I just wanted a quick follow-up. Do you, do you find that your, um, I don't know how you would describe them, but the funders, the um, academics in the north who are working with your researchers, do they recognize the strains and psychological difficulties that your, your people are facing? Um, or do you come under pressure to just deliver the data because they need it for their funders or for their uh, you know, papers that they want to publish? Well, the difficulties are enormous in this uh, collaborative process. So the people who pay for the research are in the Northern Hemisphere. And as I was saying, they do not really offer us a maneuvering space for us, the researchers on the ground. So the Northern, Uni Northern Universities come with strict and uh, strict plans. The methodologies are imposed on us, yet they don't know the security and uh, other contexts on the ground. So the researchers are forced to conduct the research within the period that is set out without really understanding the security challenges on the ground. So then 
researchers from the northern hemisphere they just need results they don't understand all the contours all the risks that are uh, the, the the research are, are, are exposed to on the ground and as i've already stated in the debate the researchers in their uh, uh, fancy offices with acs and they're here telling us what to do uh, so, so this is why we did come up the northern universities and the researchers are only waiting for results so this is the a local researcher who did participate in the collection of data as well as the analysis but yet at the end when the article comes out these people are invisible all these efforts are not all their efforts are not recognized yet they did participate uh, in fact uh, giving in more than uh, three quarters of the work uh, so this is why we need to see how we can co-write co-publish uh, this is quite important because uh, the steps today is not only to con consider the researchers of seed, but in the larger laborat laboratories that are faceless. So th these are the voices of the voiceless. And this is an injustice, actually, it's an imbalance. And that is why we uh, want to have this collaborative uh, research that is on an equal footing or equal basis. Thank you. Thank you, Ehan, and, and uh, thank you for uh, drawing attention to the fact that here's an example where a colonialist approach is um, actually leading to putting individuals in physical and psychological danger and harm. You know, so perhaps one of the most serious um, examples of the damage of colonialism that we've seen today. Um, well, I think we're coming up to time. Um, I think we have one minute left. Um, so I actually probably hand back now to Miriam. Um, I don't know if you wanted to say a few words at all before we wind up, but I'd like to thank all of the panelists very much. Um, and also the interpreters, both the language interpreters and the sign language interpreters. And I'll, I'll hand back to Miriam. Thanks, Caroline. And also from me, a warm thank you to all of our panelists. Um, these were really insightful contributions. You can find links to more information and resources on this topic in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to us.